Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Which is, of course, Burmese for acting, acting. Oh, do, you reckon, it, a, well, do you reckon a Burmese person would, would know that if, if they heard you? No. We've just insulted the whole of... Uh, the whole of, whole of Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar, yeah. Uh, yeah, right. they'll start treating you like a Rohingya. Well, there you go. It was Khmer, Khmer last week, Burmese this week. We're trapped in one part of the world, it would seem. Well, Welcome. So we have ways of making you talk. James is still writing his book on Sicily, so we're talking via the miracle of the internet. Though I suppose you're listening to us by the miracle of the internet, so let's just spread this miracle around, baby. <laughs> uh, today, we're going to concentrate on emails. Stacks of them have arrived at wehavewayspodcast.gmail.com, and it really is great to hear that you're all enjoying your retirements so much. <laughs> okay, so uh, this one came from a guy called Clive. Uh, still loving the podcast, guys. Best history pod there is. Well, I mean, you know. Thanks, Clive. Now, Clive brings up the, the potential atomic lanks because we talked about mm. the atomic Lancasters a while ago. I found this on an REF forum, he says, a few years back when researching REF Endstone while working nearby. The Wellingtons were apparently partnered by a secretive unit about which very little is known. The unit comprised six Avro Lancasters, which, in addition to being painted gloss black all over, had no squadron markings or serial numbers. They were kept away from the OTU and, unless flying, out of sight of all other personnel. They were heavily modified with their bomb doors removed and there's no official record of them being at Endstone. It has been rumoured that they were being used for experiments in carrying the British atomic bomb, which was in an advanced stage of development. Well, we don't know when this is, so... I don't know how right that is. However, such was the secrecy surrounding the British development and its inevitable overshadowing by the atomic bombs dropped on Japan by the Americans that until quite some time later, very few people knew of the, this country's involvement in such a programme. Keep up the great work, says Clive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this, this is really, really interesting and um, I'm absolutely certain that this was indeed the case um, because we know that the Lancasters can carry 10 tonnes, so that's, yeah. a bit, that's a big tick. We also There's also form in having them kind of having bits removed and, and adapted to, to take unusual objects such as the upkeep, yeah. you know, with the, the yeah. bouncing bomb. Um, uh, so th th there's form on all this. And, of course, don't forget that although um, the uh, procurement order went out for the V-bombers in, I think, 1947, something like that, yeah. Britain only got the atomic bomb in 1948, I think it was. Yeah. or was Is that right? Something like that? Or was it... Was it? 19, so look, I, think I think it was. Yeah, I think so it's a bomb in 1948, something 48, like that. 1948, yeah. Yeah, and so the first V-bombers, the, the, the Vulcan first flies in 1952 um, over Manchester, um, and I think in sort of July or August 1942, and, and then performs at, at uh, Farnborough, the very famous air show, yeah. in that, that September. So it takes a little while. So there is a bit of a hiatus. And of course, you're going to want to be able to test these things, aren't you? So to me, that all stands to reason. I mean, yeah, it's all and it's all properly cloak and dagger, isn't it? No serial numbers, yeah. no mark, no squadron markings. It's all it's all proper cloak and dagger stuff and gloss black. That's I mean that that's an interesting detail as well. I mean, that's yeah, I don't, know, I don't know. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I mean, Glossback, I'm not sure. Maybe. You, you you would expect it to be Matt, wouldn't you? You think of the kind of... Yeah. The stealth bombers and all the rest of it. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, just just really, really interesting period, you know, and such a period of incredible rapid change. And, you know, what's interesting, you know, the, the British felt very, very sort of um, shafted by the Americans who were yeah. uh, so good at doing coalition warfare. I mean, I mean, the effort they put into making sure everyone got on and everything and, and they worked together was, was just immense. But the moment the war's over, oh, my God, you know, okay, all right, well, that was the, then, this is now, you know. Although the the door on the Manhattan Project starts closing, you know, uh, Churchill keeps trying to bring it up uh, and, it, and and the, the yes, Americans but it, but start closing the door on it really by, by 1944, it's only going in one direction. You've got a lot of British scientists involved in it. You've got a lot of British scientific technology involved in it. Um, but you're absolutely right because, you know, I've, talking to you the other day about, about Leonard Cheshire. I mean, Leonard Cheshire yeah. was, was an observer on the second one. Um, and, you know, only at the 10th hour was he finally allowed on. I mean, yeah. the Americans were all for kind of sort of cutting him out of the whole thing. Um, yeah. uh, so you, you're absolutely right. But the British nonetheless felt very kind of, very kind of punched in the face on this one. Yeah, yeah. And felt yeah, that, yeah. you know, hang on a minute, you know, we were doing this together. You know, what are you saying? Uh, yeah. And actually, what, I mean, some years ago, I did some work on on the on the Cold War and, this whole period and the development of jet power and everything uh, and it was fascinating to do because one of the things one of the w- w- main reasons why the british wanted nuclear um nuclear power was not because they were they feared um uh the soviets starting a third world war it was the the the, the americans because yeah. the americans were using british bases second world war bomber bases um for their for their nuclear fleet um and the problem was was that the the, the the American the fear was that the Americans might do a uh, drop a you know send a nuclear warhead over to the Soviet Union, and then basically skedaddle back to the US and they'd be fine, Jack. Um, yeah. But we'd be left in the middle and we'd be the one who'd be on the receiving end. So it was making sure that we had that that clout at the top table so that we 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 had that armament and that capability as well. Uh, yeah. uh, but it was fear of 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 what the Americans might do was greater than fear of what the Soviets might do in those kind of early years, which I thought was just absolutely fascinating, something I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't considered at all before I kind of yeah. started looking into it, but amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, and it was also amazing finding about, about those V-bombers and what's yeah. absolutely incredible. I remember having a look at the original pencil sketch um, drawn up by the young Avro Tyros in the design department and oh my god! I mean, you think the 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 Vulcan that eventually emerged looked futuristic? The original sketch that they designed was just flipping off the radar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. it was just unbelievable. And, and actually, when you look at the um, the Victor and uh, and the Valiant, if you look at the Victor, I mean, just look at the cockpit of that. I mean, we, we just imagine that that first flies in something like 1954 or something. And just look how futuristic it is. I mean, just yeah. imagine if you had been in, in Britain in the early 1950s, you've still got shit cars, uh, um, everything looks a bit drab, there's <laughs> lots of holes in the street where you know houses have been demolished and stuff. Everything's still looking a little bit drab. And then you've got these futuristic visions of, of silver streaks hurtling across the sky, big and bold and noisy. I mean, it must have just been incredible. Yeah. Yeah, well, and especially as as everything had been propeller aircraft uh, yeah. up up until then, and suddenly you've got this this 
whole new technology completely. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it must have been mind-blowing, the, the, the arrival of the jet. Yeah, but, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Uh, particularly, that the, you know, these designs that are coming out, which are just so radical and so different and so completely kind of new and forward-looking. I mean, just amazing. Hmm. Right, we have another question from Andrew, well, an email from Andrew Ogden. Uh, Dear guys, loving the show and the book recommendations. You've recently mentioned about the work of the Red Cross. Could I ask you to mention how the Red Cross saved the British populations of Guernsey and Jersey from starvation in late 44? I wasn't aware of this until a recent holiday on the islands. When Operation Cobra swept down the Normandy Peninsula after D-Day, the German garrison and British civilians on the island were cut off from their mainland food supply in in August 44. Since the Germans wouldn't surrender, the food stock started to run out and people were facing starvation. The Red Cross chartered the SS Vega, filled it with Red Cross food parcels, and starting in December '44, made a total of five food runs into the islands before the end of the war. Garrison, of course, only surrendered on the 9th of May '45. Great work by the Red Cross. I didn't know about that. I didn't realise the, the Red Cross had, had, had you know, been able to top, top up the, the channel lines. I just did not know. Yeah, I mean, the Channel Islands were absolutely starving. You know, it really was kind of sort of, you know, raw potato time. I mean, just it was it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. And of course, you know, they weren't actually liberated until after the liberation, yeah, yeah. if you sort of mean. So, so you know, there was um, um, the ships came in, I think, uh, not until the late on the 8th or the 9th of May or something like that. So, you know, they, they were really in it right till the very end. It was tough. Yeah. OK, uh, Daniel Cross... Moving off the Red Cross, Daniel Cross uh, says, Dear Alan James, I thoroughly enjoy the podcast. I'm particularly interested in the most recent episode about the British liberation of Belson. My great uncle, Woe Wilson, was a pilot in 486 Squadron, New Zealand, and his Tempest was shot down near Bergen in 1945. He managed to land safely just behind Allied lines, but was badly burned. He was taken to Belson within days of it being liberated, as the British Army had set up decent medical facilities there for obvious reasons. I'm sure you're only too aware of the events surrounding Belson. Uncle Jim was obviously horrified by what he saw. He said that on the whole, the war was fun. He didn't really have a moral reason for fighting, especially in in Europe. He implied that this attitude was reflected among many of the combatants. He never spoke in any detail about Belson, aside from stating that he suddenly knew what he was fighting for. That's interesting. that's That's a common thing from 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 the end of the war is that the the the, cap, the camps everyone goes oh god right we this is this is what it's actually about you meant you mentioned in the podcast that british resolve towards the germans changed after belson with uncle jim it all became unrelentingly clear uncle jim went on to become one of mackindo's uh, guinea pigs and never fully recovered a mural depicted him flying a typhoon could be seen in the wanaka air museum in new zealand south island many thanks daniel cross what a fantastic email yeah amazing fascinating isn't it Absolutely fascinating, but that is that is the, the case. Is that what the discovering the camps? You get this. You get this real ripple through um, uh, Eighth Army Group by that point, isn't it? Or Eight Corps? Eight Corps, isn't it? Yeah. They're they're, they're 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 going. Well, this is what this is what we're here for. This is the this is the point of the war. Yeah. Uh, I tell you I, what, I, something's just occurring to me here, and that yeah. is that we're we're getting some really really amazing stuff and, and stuff that you yeah. and I didn't know about. And, you know, it makes you realise that there's all these little stories out here, these little nuggets, which all add up to something a bit bigger, don't they? Yeah. And maybe we should 
start encouraging people to bring this in and put it in some kind of depository somehow. I don't know. Uh, we have Ways Archive or something. I don't know. I'm talking completely off the top of my head here. No, but, I but, think that's a great But I think it's something, idea. you know, because... Otherwise, they're going to get lost, aren't they? And, and you know, yeah. you know, and it's sort of my uncle Bob told me this. Um, yeah. But 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 once the person he told it to is gone, it's gone, isn't it? And and yeah, the, yeah, and the yeah. longer you hold on to it, and it's just a verbal memory, the longer it starts to merge and become something else. I mean, there must yeah. be loads of people out there with kind of photos and stuff and ration cards and all sorts of bits and pieces and and. You know, you don't want it to be lost, do you? And actually, people come no. up to me quite a lot and say, "Oh, you know what? You know, how do you? Uh, what, what should I do with X?" And I always kind of say, "Well, you know, you should put it in, give it to one of the museums or stuff." But you know, if you give it to the Imperial Museum now, it's just going to end up in some box somewhere in Duxford. And I don't know. I just think there's something we we need to think about this. We have ways virtual archive. We have ways virtual archive that anyone okay. anyone in the world can access. What's not to like? Whether you be a scholar, whether you just be an interested party, there it all yeah. is. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break now while we figure out how to monetize that. Um, we'll, we'll be back quicker than it takes General Gavin to say, ah, don't, let's not bother with that bridge. <laughs> Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Uh, James is in his... Uh, Author's retreat, isn't that right, James? Yeah, it's yeah. Great. I mean, the, the thing is, that, you know, I'm pitching sort of kind of silk curtains and, uh, you know, being wait, being brought a boiled egg in the morning and all that sort of thing. You know, like no, 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 nothing yeah, like that. Real nothing ale. Like that. It's, a, it's an old fisherman's cottage. It's got you know, it's got stone flagstone floors. It's it's just it's just me and Betsy, my dog. Um, everyone else has been left at home, but I tell you what, I am absolutely caning it. it it's, I'm just getting through so many words, I'm, and and the start of the book is always the most complicated because you've got to get your ducks in a row, you've got to organise your cast list, you've got to kind yeah. of do the backstory, and the backstory is, you know, if you're not careful, it can be a bit boring because you want the whole thing to have a narrative drive and that read-on factor. So yeah. you've got to make it interesting. So it just once you get into the meat of it, once they've all landed. Um, um, you know, and the invasion's underway. It yeah. kind of sort of it doesn't write itself, but you know what I mean. You, you, you're so kind you, of into the swing of it. So, are you writing about the planning then? Now, is that is that the? I have been writing. About, I've done the planning, so that's done. Big tick. Um, um, and it, and it's that in itself has been really really interesting because I just I just think everyone's been really really harsh on the on the Allies in the past. You know yeah, about chaotic planning and all the rest of yeah, it. And yeah, because you look at you look at you look at uh, you, you read a standard kind of uh, history of this. It's that you know, the whole Sicily plan is chaotically put together, badly executed uh, in lots of in lots of ways, and uh, and all the all the main players just really should have known better. Is the is the is the is the kind of tone you'll get, won't you? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of sort of aren't the Allies all a bit crap? Um, aren't the Germans amazing for what they did? Uh, and you know, I just sort of think, no. I, I, I think I think what's amazing about about I mean, the plan that they do end up with ends up being the right plan. And one of the reasons why that it's the right plan is because actually air power massively um, punches above its weight, 
and does a lot of uh, and negates a lot of the problems they have. The, the big problem is, is you've got these airfields all over Sicily and it's yeah. triangular. And you've got a whole batch in the west. You've got a batch in the sort of central south, southern bit, and you've got a bit in the you know you've got a load more in the in the east. So what what the airmen and the naval men are worried about the the naval men are worried that that Axis air power is going to kind of hamper the the the, the shipping bit of the invasion. Yeah. Um, and the airmen are also worried about that that they're not going to be able to provide sufficient air cover if you leave all these air, air grounds intact. So there is a massive case for having having um, a western landing in the western part of Sicily, but also a landing in the eastern part of Sicily. And all these debates and all these discussions are going on while the head of the army, uh, of the ground forces, is also being kind of airlifted into Tunisia to sort out the kind of disaster that's unfolding following Kasserine and lift yeah. the whole thing into shape and make sure that we win in Tunisia, it, it, you know, PDQ. And so... Poor Alexander has got two jobs. He's got to oversee the planning for the next major invasion, which is going to be the the largest amphibious invasion ever undertaken, ever in the history yep. of the world. And that basically the last precedent for this is Gallipoli, because Torch doesn't count because they've already yeah. politically kind of worked out that the French are going to throw in the yeah. towel after a couple yeah. of days. So yeah. it's not the same. Um, and, and as everyone knows, Gallipoli didn't go spectacularly well. So, <laughs> you know, you, you've... There's a lot to kind of think about here, whilst at the same time kind of trying to reorganise the front in Tunisia and make sure that we win in quick order so that we can actually then get on with Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily. And, and, you know, so there are these debates. And and the thing about the Western thing is it's fine to separate your forces if if the opposition is going to be really, really weak. But it's not fine to separate your forces and have a landing force in the West completely mutually unsupportive yeah. of what's happening in the East if, if the opposition is really is really strong. The problem is, is no one has the faintest idea at the time of planning what the strength of the of the Axis forces on Sicily is going to be. And so therefore it goes through a number of different um, Permu- different planning stages, which yeah, is yeah. just entirely normal by current standards and absolutely fine. Um, and frankly, it's a, a miracle that, that they ever get to any kind of agreement uh, by the beginning of May, um, which is still within the, the dates of the North Africa campaign. I mean, it, it's phenomenal. And what actually happens is they decide to concentrate on the East, which is clearly the most sensible thing, because the one thing that cannot happen is that it fails. I mean that that trumps everything. So you've got to you've got to be cautious, and you've got to make sure you've got all your bases covered. And how they get around the whole problem of the airfields in the west still being kind of up and running without um, a, a landing in the west is by absolutely hammering them with air power. Well, and the well, air power yeah. performance in May and June and the first part of July is absolutely off the radar. Well, and, and the and the and the Luftwaffe is essentially defeated in the Mediterranean. But but by the time of Husky, and in exactly. fact, and 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 what they've been, and what the Germans have been doing is bringing bringing air power over from the Eastern Front to try and resolve the battle in you know around Malta, Absolutely. and then uh, and to try and to try and have a decisive moment, and they can't yep. do it, and the the the, the air power att- rate of attrition in in the Med during this period is actually is actually decisive on the Eastern Front because the because yes. the, the the you know was was when people go oh you know the meds a sideshow well if the if you're the Luftwaffe it isn't because you, because if you're you, Hitler it isn't yeah and if you're Hitler it isn't but 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 you you the Luftwaffe have been have been given the job of sorting out the Mediterranean and and because because after all they don't have the naval power to do that but air power arguably can have an effect and and you yep. look at the you look at the the, the Malta battle at one point that the, the, the uh, uh, Axis air power is incredibly effective and does. Yep. 
write down uh, what the Allies are able to do in, in, in the Med. And so, so that's the Axis effort, the Luftwaffe effort, which means they can't do it on the Eastern Front at precisely the point they need to be doing it. And yeah. so when people go, oh, you know, Tunis is a sideshow, the Meds are sideshow, the, it, it, Italy's a sideshow, it's, 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 it's nonsense because the Luftwaffe is, you know, the first major defeat inflicted on the Luftwaffe happens in the Med in 43. And then the second one, of course, is big week in 44. Um, where, where yeah, I mean, they lose, they lose between, between November and uh, the beginning of May 1942. The Luftwaffe loses something like 2,400 aircraft. Yeah. Mostly in Tunisia. Between June and September 1943, the Luftwaffe loses 702 aircraft on the Eastern Front and 3,405... There we are. No, 3,504 in the Mediterranean. I mean, there we are. That's just amazing. So they've lost they've lost six thousand aircraft yeah. in ten months in the Mediterranean. Yeah, and it doesn't matter how many fighters you're able to squeeze out. You can't you can't keep up with the air crew. You can't keep up with the training. That's the, the problem. Yeah, so, and, so and all that. Yeah. And it goes back to Mackie Steinhoff, you know, who, yeah. who's extract from his book I was reading yeah. over Christmas. Uh, and, you know, he's just saying, you have no idea what's going on, you know, when, when um, Franz or Lutzo turns up yeah. um, uh, uh, and says, come on, you know, surely you can pull your finger out a little bit here. And he goes, you, have, you just haven't got the first clue. You know, we haven't got enough parts. We haven't got enough. The conditions here are just not conducive to kind of fighter warfare because, you know, the engines are effectively being kind of sandpapered to death. Um, yeah. You, you know, you've got these new guys coming out who just... You're spending ninety percent of your time over water. Yeah. Um, it's just not the same. It's unbelievably dangerous, well, incredibly and the, difficult circumstances. And the American, the American Air Force deployment in the Med is 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 is, is colossal by the point of Husky, isn't it? I mean, there 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 there's thousands of the, the, the Amer- you know the American build up in the Med is with air, with aircraft is gigantic, isn't it? This this thing yeah. that the, that the Luftwaffe can. Can can try all it, all it likes, but it, it it just can't beat what's being put in front of it. And obviously, this has a knock on on the eastern front because it means that the, that they no longer control the you know the, the control of the skies is the thing that made Barbarossa go so well to start with. Yes, and they've they've lost they've lost their grip on that. It's gone. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think people, people very often when looking at when looking at the idea of the Med as a sideshow, they leave the air side of out, out of it completely. And the Allies are able because, to... Because, because it's because everyone's so land-centric. Everyone thinks yeah. in terms of, of the land power. And one yeah. of the reasons we think in terms of land power also is because, to a large extent, from kind of sort of middle of 1943 onwards, land power is all that the Germans have got left. I yes. mean, not entirely. I mean, of course, there are still... There is still Luftwaffe, of course. But, but you know, to a certain extent, that... You know, it's certainly got almost no naval power. And so, yeah. predominantly, Germany is fighting the last kind of sort of couple of years of the war on land and of course predominantly in the eastern front the the campaign is a is a land-based campaign albeit augmented by air power um whereas the allies are absolutely fighting on free planes they're fighting naval power air power and land power and that is all part of their kind of still not flesh and in and in in separate theaters so what you've what you've got is you've a mediterranean theater and and the air power there isn't going to have to suddenly go off Fly back to the UK and put out put out the brush fire, you know the the no. Luftwaffe are like a fire brigade and they're being they're being they're being sent all over because the yep. Germans the Germans are, are, are as ever actually shorthanded in 
in every respect. Yeah, so they're trying to use it as a kind of force multiplier, and it's not yeah. really working anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, right. Well, that 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 spun wildly off what we were we were going to talk about. Um, yeah, but we it have another. No, it doesn't matter, does it? No, I can't wait to read this book. When's it in, when's it in all good bookshops, James? Uh, September sometime. <laughs> Wonderful, fantastic. Okay, um, uh, we have another email. James Dunn says, absolutely love the pod. Hi, chaps. Bit of a latecomer, but have binge listened to them all in a couple of weeks. God, you have my <laughs> oh deepest my sympathy. God, God mate. <laughs> That's uh, impressive. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, if you haven't been coherently brainwashed... Um, by us, then, you know. Anyway, I have a question about the impact of Dunkirk. Obviously, rescuing 340,000 soldiers is a huge boost for morale, especially for those rescued. But what military impact did it have on the outcome of the war? If there had been no huge evacuation, would things have been different? Presumably, Germany still couldn't have invaded Britain. Not enough landing craft, no coherent plan, no air supremacy or naval supremacy. Unless you think the blow to morale would have seen Britain surrender, surely we'd have eventually rearmed and retrained troops even if it took a little longer. So what other impact was there? Did the men rescued from Dunkirk go on to play a significant role elsewhere, e.g. in North Africa? Love to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you. Well, the evacuation's decisive in so many ways, isn't it? Because, yep. because if nothing else, you get, you, you get, you get, you've got to get all, your, you get all your professional soldiers out because what, what you're going to need to do one way or another is rebuild. And it's, yes. the, it's those cadres that are the, the, the you know, if, if I were to if I were to prioritise any one thing, it's getting yep. the the people out who are then able to rebuild the army. That's the that's the amongst the three hundred forty thousand soldiers. Obviously, the other thing is if you'd left all those men in France, yeah, it gives the Germans a real powerful political football, a hostage, yep. essentially. And we are, after all, talking about the Hitler government, so they're they're not they're not. If they, if they manage to capture an entire British army, they're not going to play nice with it, are they? That's the that's I think a thing. No, I mean I think I as think a bargaining thing, as a bargaining chip. I think I think you know on paper, yes, you know we should we should have been able to carry on, um, and it doesn't really, you know, of course it matters absolutely enormously, but but because no, we're naval politi- power, politically, got, we, we we would have been fine. Politically, we've been absolutely stuffed, and and the closest Britain comes to losing the war. To my mind, without a shadow of doubt, is Monday the twenty seventh of May, yep. nineteen forty, and that is just as Operation Dynamo is getting underway. It's actually launched. You know, the green button um, is fired off at kind of five thirty p.m. Yeah. on the previous Sunday. But actually, the twenty seventh is the first day of, of lifting troops, and yeah. they're incredibly pessimistic. And only seven thousand six hundred sixty nine men are lifted on that day. Yeah. Um, and because of the, the the pressure of the Germans, all the rest of them, because of the the terrible situation and having to lift people off beaches. It is expected that the absolute best case scenario is about 40,000 men, which is yeah. obviously catastrophic. Now, the problem, so what happens is, is what you have to understand is that no one has forecast this. That yeah. this, this is just the biggest total shock ever. Yeah. And for the moment, the British people are panicking. They are, they're like rabbits in headlights. They're just thinking, oh my God, this is absolutely catastrophic. You know, this is why kind of Harold Nicholson and Vita Sackville West have got, got yeah. um, cyanide pills to take if the Germans yeah. arrive. You know, they're, they're yeah. just totally thrown. And, 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 and Halifax, who is the foreign secretary, is the most respected politician in the country, is the one who's going, look, you know, we're shit, clearly up the creek without a paddle. We need to think about this. We need to keep our options open. We, you know, we've got this, this, um, uh, uh, this opportunity through um, Signor uh, Bastianini to, to kind of get to Mussolini and, and explore peace feelers. Yeah. And Churchill goes, you don't understand. Once you open the door, 
it's blown wide open and you'll never yeah. shut it again. There yeah, can yeah. be no talk of this and all the rest of it. And, and, and Halifax threatens to resign. Had Halifax resigned, that would have brought down the government and that would have been it. It would have just been good yeah. night, Charlie. But fortunately, yeah. he doesn't. Churchill kind of talks him out of it, um, um, holds his nerve. And, and, and that same night, the, the, that same day, um, Bill Tennant, Captain Bill Tennant, who is the senior naval officer who's arrived um, on HMS Wolfhound that, uh, the, the previous afternoon on Sunday, has realised that the mole that sticks out of yeah. Dunkirk actually can take, they, probably they take the weight. Off, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so they, they realise that actually there's this lifeline and suddenly they've got a pier. And a pier is, is 400 times more efficient than lifting people off a beach. Uh, and so suddenly they're kind of double stacking, triple stacking these boats along the pier and people are just kind of, it's just a total conveyor belt. Uh, and I think there's something like 24,000 people lifted the next day, yeah. 44,000 the next. It gets up to kind of 64,000 by the 30th, something like that, 66,000. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how you get to 338,000. It's got nothing to do with the little ships and all the rest of it, as we were <laughs> discussing the other day. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but that's how they get it. And so all these troops do get back and, and suddenly it's this massive relief and, and suddenly they're kind of, you know, they're able to go, yeah, actually we've got lots in our favour and it's all going to be okay if we can just hold off and stave off stave off the um, the invasion. And, and, and Churchill makes this very good point. He says, says Hitler knows he must um, uh, um, um, take Britain or lose the war. Uh, yeah. And he's absolutely correct. And of course, as we know, Hitler doesn't and he does lose the war. So, yeah. you know, Churchill was absolutely spot on about that. Uh, and loads and loads of soldiers that come back from Dunkirk end up fighting throughout the rest of the war. You know, well, I'm just writing about a guy called Bill Cheel. Bill Cheel was evacuated from Dunkirk. He then went through Tunisia and North Africa. I'm following him now in Sicily. He ends up in Hamburg. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he left Britain in, I think, October 1939 to join the BEF. And, and he finished the war in May 1945 near Hamburg. I mean, mm. unbelievable with the DLI. With I mean, the, it is, the, the, the thing the thing with Dunkirk is it is it is absolutely remarkable that that the army as an institution is able to say, "Oh well, um, that didn't go very well, did it?" and <laughs> and and shake itself down, and then four years well, not even four years later, because men are sent to North Africa uh, that summer, right? Yep. Even though, and in fact, it's not just Dunkirk because there's, you know, there's there's then two years of two years, best part of two years of absolutely diabolical reverses and defeats that the army somehow manages to keep going. Doesn't as an institution doesn't fall in on itself. I think that's re that's the thing that's really really interesting about you know because argu arguably you after Dunkirk you could say well we're we're shit at this aren't we the germans the germans are unbeatable we are really bad at modern war fighting they wouldn't have called it that then you know how how on earth do we and obviously they then go into this sort of paroxysm of how on earth do we f defeat what they think is blitzkrieg what's the answer did we have the answers already before the war and a lot of a lot of what they were planning on on doing if ever anyone had bought them the the, the kit and uh, you know, all that all, there's all that going on, that sort of intellectual side of things. And I think that's really interesting that the army, as an institution, is able to overcome what 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 you know is a, humi a humiliating. Uh 
you know, yeah, I'd, mo- I'd moment. Agree with that. But, I mean, but I also think I think think that most people in the BF recognise that actually the BF have fought incredibly well. I mean, you know, I, 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 I've said it before. I'll say yes, it again. but yeah, yeah, uh, I know, um, I know, you know, I know. It that was case. the flanks that were yeah. pulling, yeah, pulling back. That, so they have I know to pull that, back with but, them. But, but you have Churchill at the same time going. These generals are all gutless. They won't fight. I want generals who fight and all this sort of thing. Whereas, where, whereas the army all basically, well, they're, they're they're operating within the political confines they've got. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's the very it's the old story that you know the soldiers are having to deal with the situation the politicians have put them in. Uh, well, I, know, I absolutely or, agree. Or, but or I agree with that, and I also think it is it is remarkable that you go from kind of ground zero for for the United States Army and ground zero for the British Army in uh, I think you can say June nineteen forty. It's kind of okay, blank piece of paper. Let's start again. Yeah, and and it is in the US and it is in it is in Britain and they go yeah. okay right okay we you know the French were going to do the fighting bit on the ground we were just going to be you know a few tagalongs okay we are now going to have to shoulder this yeah um, and Britain's thinking it's going to have to shoulder it without you know maybe with American material but not with Americans on the ground. Uh, Roosevelt also is going oh crikey okay the the Atlantic's not maybe the kind of big barrow that it once was we really need to get real with this and kind of build up. Three years later, they're doing the biggest amphibious invasion the world has ever seen, which, of course, is Operation Husky, you know, the invasion of Sicily. And it is, it is you know, when you look at photographs of the port at Bizerta, um and, and Alexandra, and you see the amount of material that is being poured onto these landing ships, another thing, another... Th- a vessel that's not, that's not even a twinkling in the milkman's eye in 1940. It is absolutely astonishing. But when you also consider that all of that material has to fit into shipping cycles, so so yes. you know the, a, a freighter's round trip to get the, the yes. you know bauxite or whatever that you know that that all these things a a month long months long uh, tales. Yes. So 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 it's actually all happened faster even than it appears because yes. you, you you know that the, the, the actual t- muscle time. Obviously, yep. is, they're constrained by the seasons, and they're constrained by you know how how long it takes to ship stuff to places. Yeah, it's, it's it, even more it's even more incredible. It, it, but, it I mean, is just it is just absolutely unbelievable. And and we were talking about the brilliance of the uh, Americans to construct stuff. I mean, you know, in Tunisia they build seventy one airfields. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. seventy one yeah. landing grounds, many of which are, are all weather because it's the, the weather's really crap in Tunisia in, yeah. in the end of 1942, beginning of 1943, that winter. And so they've got concrete runways. I mean, it's it's just off the radar. I mean, they they, they, they suddenly realise they don't have enough enough um, uh, capacity on Malta. So the Americans go, not a problem, we'll just build another one. So they go off to Gozo and they literally build one like four days. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just... You know, and you've got to get all that stuff to Gozo, which is a kind of sort of rock in the middle of the Mediterranean. I mean, it's 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 not like it's sort of in the middle of America or something. I mean, you know, these are these are not easy undertakings. It's it's yeah. quite phenomenal. And then you add on to that, you know, what they're doing in the Pacific. I mean, just the, the resupply of those naval forces. I mean, there's there's a reason why the Pacific War is a, for, a predominantly naval campaign, and that's because most of it happens at sea and and, and on tiny little atolls and, and little islands and so on. And how do you supply that? And and it's yeah. it's the it's the side that is better able to keep supplied that is going to win, and and yeah. that is always going to be America because they're absolutely brilliant at it. It, it. it just even in today's world that would be you know where where you've got um computer technology and, yeah. and GPS and all the rest of it. 
that would be going some. But in the 1940s, it, it is just so hard to get your head around the brilliance of their logistic arm. It is that, that supply of war, that operational level is just out of this world. Superb. Well, James, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. What a way to end. You'd, I mean, you're, yeah. oh. you're all, he's all fired yeah. up about yeah, forklifts. Well, he's yeah. amazing, isn't he? He's just amazing. <laughs> no, it is amazing. There's no way around it. It is absolutely amazing. And, and, and you're absolutely right. It's, you know, it's in three years of that happens. You look at, it, took, it took us three years to not manage to leave the EU. <laughs> didn't it yeah, anyway thanks for emails we'll, we'll, we'll do more next time I promise keep in touch twitter hashtag we have ways email we have ways podcast at gmail.com for all of you in retirement cheerio cheerio cheerio